Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space podcast. I'm your host, Mark Shapiro. Before we get to our episode today, a thank you to our sponsors, Lori Bedke and Creighton University. Creighton University believes in equipping physicians for success in the exam room, the operating room, and the boardroom. If you want to increase your business acumen, deepen your leadership knowledge, and earn your seat at the table, then Creighton's healthcare executive education is for you. Specifically tailored to busy physicians, our hybrid programs blend the richness of on-campus residencies with the flexibility of online learning. Earn a Creighton University Executive MBA degree in 18 months or complete the non-degree Executive Fellowship in six months. Visit www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E to learn more. My guest in this episode is Trisha Pendergrast. Trisha is a second-year medical student at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University. She is also the co-founder of Get Me PPE Chicago. And in addition to that, she is the lead author on a paper recently published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, Prevalence of Personal Attacks and Sexual Harassment of Physicians on Social Media. She joins us to give us a behind-the-scenes look, some insight into what it's like to be in medical school during the COVID-19 pandemic, what it's like to be a trainee during this incredible time of upheaval in the United States. And her perspective is really wonderful. She also shares with us the impetus behind writing that paper, and there are links to the paper in the show notes, and I definitely recommend you check it out, as well as the call to action that she hopes that it sounds. And we do spend some time talking about her ongoing work, getting PPE where it is needed in Chicago. Trisha is doing much work on many different fronts at the same time, and her insights are really profound, and this was an absolutely spectacular episode. Before we get to it, just want to invite everyone, please check out the archive of Explore the Space podcast, www.explorethespaceshow.com. Hit me on Twitter anytime at ETS show. Email me, Mark, at explorethespaceshow.com. Definitely subscribe to Explore the Space podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to download your shows. We are on all of them, and we really appreciate the support. So now, without further ado, Trisha Pendergrast. Trisha, welcome to Explore the Space Podcast. I'm delighted you're here. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's it's sort of funny. There's been all of these conversations around, will 2021 be any different than 2020? And I, I would surmise that for you, nothing has changed aside from you flipped a piece of paper over or put a different calendar on the wall. Because just in terms of following your social media and reading the things that you're putting out there, the tempo is no different. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I feel like I've been in a dead sprint since the end of March, balancing both school and professional commitments and also um, co-founding a 501c3 sponsored organization. I'm waiting for the pace to slow down a bit, but um, so far it has not. You carry it all really well. And I say that simply from the fact that I see what you put out on social media and you and I know a lot of the same people, but that it is one of the things that I'm, I'm glad you're here to discuss. But let's just first give that sense of what that life and, and swirl is like for you as a medical student. You're in your second year of medical school, right? Yes. Yes, I am. What is what is it like to be a medical student during a pandemic? I know what medical school was like for me. 
I'm not even going to bother mentioning what it was like because it's gone. <laughs> it is nothing like what you're experiencing. But I'm I'm really curious. What is that feeling of being in medical school in this period of a pandemic of so many different things going on of the swirl of social media of writing all of these wonderful articles and doing all of this incredible work. What is it like? Well, the second year of medical school is a lot like uh, treading water and people just kind of keep handing you heavier, heavier and heavier bricks to hold above your head and you just have to keep treading the water. So in that sense, I think my experience as a second year medical student is not very different than the second years last year, the ones before that. My class is in a interesting situation where we're actually the last class to take step one and get a three-digit score. So we are the last group of students that will go through that process. And you mentioned social media, you know, taking all of your classes and moving them online makes medical school even more isolating than it normally is. It can be a very isolating experience, even when you're in a room full of other people. So it's really been sort of a saving grace to be able to reach out and see that, you know, every every other M2 is feeling the pressure of um, trying to prepare for step one, um, balancing our classes, balancing other commitments, and also trying to do all of this in what has been described as like extra hard mode. I've seen people describe 2020 as like playing a video game on the hardest setting. We're trying to do the hardest year of medical school amidst a worldwide crisis. That's about as difficult setting as you can put learning medicine on. It's interesting so it's- to think of it like that, too, because it's you're, you're in the second year of a really, really, really difficult graduate program that's highly sought after and difficult to get into. You're doing it in the midst of a pandemic. And all the while, you know that you're next up. Right. You, you're training to do that work. Is that is that inspiring? Is it nerve wracking? Is it a bit of everything? What does it feel like to know that as we're moving through this, that you're you are the ones that we're all looking to like, hey, we need you. We need you to study. We need you to learn. We need you to mentally and physically prepare yourself because you're, you're, you're coming up. You're our next you're our next group of people that are going to help do the work. Yeah, I don't really mind that expectation at all. I wouldn't be going to medical school if I didn't want and crave and seek out a heavy burden on my shoulders. I think the more challenging reality to contend with, at least for me and emotionally and doing the work that I've been doing, which is getting PPE to healthcare workers who don't have any, is the knowledge that my fellow classmates, my fellow trainees, we are graduating into a system that does not support its trainees, that does not support its doctors. That is a much more difficult burden to to think about. I like having that expectation of, you know, you are the future of medicine. I think that's really energizing. What's less so is worrying about Am I going to be matching into a residency where I'll feel safe and protected? Will I be at a hospital that actually listens to um, its doctors when they say they need this form of support? And in many ways, that is just by chance. Um, And that's scary. It's a really interesting insight because we put that next to what you were saying before that social media has been that tool that has allowed you to um, that can still allow you to have that sense of connectivity 
does the idea that you can leverage that tool to express what you just expressed here on a podcast, does it feel like that's going to make a difference? I, I see the the narratives and the conversations that you and other medical students and residents are having. We see what happened at Stanford a couple of weeks ago where residents and fellows protested the fact that they had been not put in the front cohort to get the vaccine and it made a difference. Mm-hmm. Are those just anecdotes, but don't reflect that sea change that we're needing? Or do you think that the needle has moved and will continue to move? So social media is unique because it exists largely, not all the time, outside of the traditional bubble of academic institutions and healthcare institutions, which means it's a space that is in some respect removed from the traditional power hierarchies that we commonly see, which does give trainees and especially marginalized individuals who are physician trainees a voice and that voice can be amplified exponentially and that is where you know the organizing and the change that has come from I think a great example is the work that's been done to get rid of race when calculating um, GFR I've seen a lot of advocacy around that on social media and that was largely led by black women and women of color and those trainees may not have you know, been amplified as much in their home institutions. And I'm not presuming to know anything about their situations, but that's just one example of a very successful campaign to draw attention to an issue that really took life kind of in all of medicine, as opposed to just at their home institutions. When it comes to galvanizing change from a cultural perspective for medical trainees, I think... There's so much that needs to be done, but really the underlying sickness um, <laughs> under all of it is that medicine is designed to be like in this country, a service that has to be sold. And so we are like service professionals and we don't get to act like physicians so much. And we see this again when it comes to COVID and wanting to get PPE places the corners that get cut in terms of uh, healthcare worker safety are all driven by organizations wanting to make money, by nursing home companies wanting to make money, by healthcare systems, you know, wanting to recoup their losses in terms of finances. So I think the underlying sickness in medicine is that. But what social media gives us a chance to do is amplify situations that are genuinely unsafe and dangerous, like the residents not getting vaccinated at Stanford. And I hope and I think that that possibility has put institutions and the powers that be on notice that when there is a serious issue, it no longer stays within the four walls of the institution. It will get out. And that drives, you know, I, as a medical trainee, am looking at institutions that do things like that. And I say to myself, do I want to apply there for residency? That's going to those those situations where I see an institution not prioritizing basic safety for their trainees. That makes me not want to send an application to them. I just I hope programs are aware of how much that means to future residents when we see things like that. 
That's a really powerful differentiator, and it certainly didn't exist before. And that level of transparency is certainly different. And as I'm hearing you speak, it's it's really informative for me, and it really coalesces some of the impressions that I've had. The way you discuss it, and the way you discuss it when you're talking about it with your friends, your medical student friends, your pre-med friends all around the country, different years, first year of medical school, last year of medical school, everything in between. Is that same level of sophistication, insight, energy, desire to see change happen? Is that pretty universal? Where where are the rest of your teammates as you see it in terms of seeing the world as you do and wanting things to be different? You know, I was thinking about this today because I've, I've gotten asked recently, there's been a lot of media buzz about a recent paper that just came out. Kind oh, we're going to get to that recent paper that just came out. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, like questions like, oh, how do you how do you do it? How do you pull it off? What like what what makes you special? Right. It's a skill set to learn and thrive in academic spaces. It is a a bundle of skills that you have to develop over time. And I worked for four years in academic research as a research assistant, then a research coordinator, then a lead research coordinator before going to med school. So it's not that I have any particular special skill set per se. I'm good at some things, better at some things than most medical students just because of those experiences. But I've been in these spaces for long enough to see the patterns. Um, I've, I've always been someone who is able to see connections between people and patterns and how systems exist. It's just kind of a transparent thing for me to understand. And I've been in academia for long enough to see the way trainees are, are treated. You know, I, I'm actually I have I have Twitter up in on my uh, computer right now, and Dr. Colleen Farrell out of New York, who I believe you're familiar with. Absolutely. Um, yeah, she tweeted about how someone, a medical student, walked into a room and said, "I'm a medical student. I'm not important." And she said, "This is what med school does to people. You say I'm not important rather than your name." And my response to this, because that's the first thing that popped into my head, is when when we're started to be treated like we're important, we'll start to believe that we're important. When trainees are treated like they're important, they'll believe it. When, you know, the entire hospital is getting overtime, but residents aren't, they're not going to think that you value their time. They're not going to think that you value their health. Um, when you don't get re- when you don't give residents COVID vaccines, but you give it to your executives, the trainees aren't going to think that you value their their health. And so, I think it's just a matter of me being in in medicine, academic medicine, as a kind of a bench warmer on the research side for long enough to just see these patterns. But you know, my my classmates are are they understand that my peers understand that, and I think. The unfortunate thing is I, you know, I see some of this, but really the brunt of the marginalization and the harassment and the disrespect falls onto my classmates who are people of color, who are gender minorities, who are sexuality minorities. So there are other people who unfortunately get more of the uh, mistreatment and that's what we need to change. I'm glad that you feel like not only you see it this way, but that others do as well. And that there is a skill set. When you said that there's a skill set to this, 
that heartened me because my experience coming through all of this, right? I'm not an academic. So there's a reason for that. I did not have that level of sophistication. I don't think many of the people that trained in my era of training, you know, the early 2000s finishing residency even thought there was a skill set to be had, let alone understanding what those skills would be. I left and didn't look back. And now I look back thing. Thank God I'm not in there. But I also think it's great that there are people that see a skill set, want to develop it, have empathy for those who, hey, as we're getting better, there are still people being left behind and we need to make sure to support and elevate them too. This mm-hmm. is critical stuff. And what you were saying about that sense of valuation, I've never heard it described like that before, which is both good and bad, but I really appreciate you framing it like that. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I've, I've heard it said before that the way that you spend your money or a budget is just a list of priorities, right? Yeah, so if you're, yeah. if you're not doing things like funding, I mean, in this day and age vaccines, but if you're not funding um, adequate leave for your trainees or paternal and maternal leave or th- just very basic things to make people feel respected, yeah, you know? You're going to move through the next couple of years, and that's going to be a persisting theme, I would imagine. I don't, and I'm, what you, I'm curious your thoughts too. I don't see this getting better, you know, next month. This is this is going to be long term work, kind of unwrapping a really tight, w- tightly wound knot. Mm-hmm. Do you feel excited about that? Is that motivating? Is it daunting? Do you think that the numbers of people that are kind of learning the same skills that you've learned or want to learn them will continue to grow? What is your sense of momentum around this? I think that, yeah, it's not going to be fixed next month, unfortunately. You know, right now, a lot of healthcare institutions are on the brink of disaster because of COVID, unfortunately. So I don't foresee anything really big changing soon. And and that's fine. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot going on in the world. I think there is momentum moving forward. I think we've had a lot of really important sort of galvanizing events, both in society and also within medicine that have united marginalized people, but also have motivated you know, people in positions of power to become allies to these causes. And what we need is now that there's a spotlight on some of these issues and how the way that, you know, we teach trainees and how trainees are treated. What we really need is institutions to not just listen because they're listening. We need change to be enacted based on the suggestions of marginalized and minoritized individuals. Because a lot of the time we see interest in these topics, we see interest in in how trainees are treated and how to make spaces more inclusive. And then we do something like make a task force and make suggestions and then nothing real happens. So not only do we need institutions to listen, we need them to enact change and we need accountability. We need accountability for the the deans of institutions and the the CEOs of hospitals to not just put on a facade of inclusivity, um, to actually take suggestions from their 
employees and their trainees and their physicians and and change the way they operate. And it's doing Um, that on that equal platform like you described, right, where they're demonstrating that sense of value across the board, whether you're a medical student or a resident or whatever the case. One of the, I think, steps of progress we can make is acknowledging that whatever those hierarchies look like, we are all whole people and we're all in that space together and, and, and hurting together and celebrating together, but need to be valued together. And the way you identified that earlier, I think is, is just critically important because if you devalue a huge component of your workforce, it's a lot easier to look past their recommendations to a task force. Yeah. I mean, you, in any situation, even if it's a situation where there's a very clear hierarchy, you should approach a meeting, a going on rounds, whatever, with the expectation that every single person in the room, you can learn something from them. That should be your expectation, regardless of you could be the CEO of a hospital or a research assistant on their second day, right? Everyone has something to contribute. So that is how we need to be approaching the situations where these conversations conversations are happening. And I think that you have demonstrated by action and deed exactly what you just described. And I think this is a great way for us to move to what you alluded to earlier. This recent paper that was published where you are the lead author that came out on, on January 4th of 2021 in the in JAMA Internal Medicine, Prevalence of Personal Attacks and Sexual Harassment of Physicians on Social Media. It's obviously discussed a great deal on social media, but this mm-hmm. is that idea of like you described, right? It's it's taking action. It's making recommendations. It's getting something published. It's seeing a large institution slash organization, the Journal of the American Medical Association, choosing to publish it, which I think should be also called out and recognized. Mm-hmm. Doing this, though, was an act of courage in and of itself. Can you just give us a snapshot of what the process of putting an article with that title into the public sphere felt and looked like? So this paper came out of a larger data set that a group of us put together that looked at physician experiences on social media. So um, there's other data in there. So stay tuned for the sequel paper. Um, <laughs> Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, well played. Um, and so the impetus for actually writing this paper came out of an instance last year where um, someone called my deans and essentially threatened me. Um, and I told, as I discussed with you before, Dr. Jane and Dr. Aurora are really great mentors to me. I told them what had happened because I was really shook up about the fact that this person went to those links to try and ruin my career. Um, Trainees' careers in medicine are so, so vulnerable. So when an attack like that is perpetrated, that person knows what they're doing, right? They're putting us in a situation where everything that we've worked for over the last, you know, five, 10 years could be for nothing. So I was noticeably very shaken up about this. Um, I felt scared, um, frightened, disappointed. And it was from those conversations where I was sort of working through my emotions with the support of Dr. Jane and Dr. Aurora that they said, hey, you know, maybe we should revisit that data set. We did collect information about harassment. Um, Maybe we should take a look at that. So that was really where the um, motivation for the paper came from. 
in terms of, I actually didn't consider it a courageous thing to put this paper out in the world. This was data to me like any other data. It felt like any other paper that I guess I, you know, I was a part of, which is interesting that you, you painted that way because, you know, there is a possibility when you put out a topic such as this, that you sort of invite negative comments or interactions upon yourself. So I could see why it would be perceived as courageous. Um, but really it felt vindicating almost because, you know, the data showed that one in four doctors have been attacked. One in six physician women have been sexually harassed on social media. It felt vindicating to put these numbers out there for me because I they made me feel like I, I wasn't alone. You know, I, you said that there's a lot of discussion about this on social media. Yes, we're aware that there's a problem, but sometimes putting numbers and data to a problem can make it feel more real can make change feel more actionable. And that's actually some of the comments that we've received by people sharing this piece have been, yes, this happened to me. Like, Thank you for doing this paper. This happened to me. So um, I hope it was vindicating for others as well. Do you think that it also serves as something of a call to action? And I ask you this because this is one of my takeaways from it as well, that a call to action to those in positions of leadership, particularly in medical schools and residency and fellowship programs or people early in their career to understand right that evolution of social media and its role in medicine in America. Before it was, this was a no-fly zone, don't go in there now. It's look, it's ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of people are on social media in one form or another, right? We're whole people. We're no different than the rest of the population. <laughs> that this is a call to action for organizations to develop some some training and some ideas about what to do slash how to handle those elevated attacks, phone calls, emails of someone saying, hey, this medical student on Twitter said this, Dean X, you should deal with this, Dean X. Dean X needs to understand that this is A, happening, and B, how to distill it, how to manage it, how to treat it, recognizing that the student who is the subject of it may be experiencing exactly what you described. It's unwarranted. It's really scary. They're trying to destroy my career. Mm -hmm. Also, at the same time, Dean X will field concerns and complaints that have merit and validity, right? That's part of being a dean. That's part of being in leadership. Those things happen. They need to have that skill set to understand that and to understand the social media world as well. For me, it felt like there was a call to action to develop that facility. Was that part of the intent of writing the article? Um, Yeah, you asked if, if it's a call to action. I mean, it better be. Right. It better be this. I hope our data puts institutions on notice that they need to get working on plans of action for this. The reality of the situation is even if you're not a physician, if you're a woman, if you're especially a woman of color, if you're especially a woman who is out and queer on social media, you're going to get harassed. You're going to get sexually harassed. You're going to get attacked. um, You're going to get lewd messages. So that reality is is there. The other reality is that the presence of physicians, the presence of women physicians, and especially the presence of minoritized individuals who become physicians, um, and I'm talking about people who are disabled, people who identify as a gender or sexuality minority, people who are minoritized on the basis of race, ethnicity, religion, um, you know, Uh, immigration status, it is so important that those individuals, especially 
are on social media. Not only has COVID highlighted the absolute necessity of those people, people's voices on social media to elevate the issues of inequity when it comes to public health responses to our pandemic, we have a major major, and I, you know, I could talk for 40 minutes about this topic, a major pipeline issue in medicine. The majority of students who are admitted to medical schools are white. A disproportionate amount of students who are admitted to medical schools come from the upper one-fifth socioeconomic status, whereas like 5% come from the bottom fifth um, quintile of socioeconomic status in this country. So, We need people on social media who are accessible to pre-meds who, you know, may not have a parent who is a physician, who may not have a lot of money to spend on MCAT prep. We need people like that on Twitter. So what we can't afford with this pipeline issue is to have a disproportionate burden of harassment, of the impact of harassment, which is people leaving platforms on these people who can be um, role models for future physicians or who can elevate public health issues. So it's really, it's it's an equity issue in terms of how we respond to our patients' needs. Because, you know, speaking from experience, I learn a lot by following many different people on Twitter. I learned a lot. Yeah, I agree with that for sure, too. You know, it's so important to not just follow people who look like you, especially as a white physician, especially as a white physician. We need to make sure that the voices we're amplifying, yes, but listening to are not just other white people. And then also, it's a pipeline issue. So if you're someone, if you're an institution that says that you care about diversifying your med school class, about improving the way the physician demographics reflect our country, we, are, we need to be concerned about keeping and retaining advocates on, on Twitter. You know, a great example is um, Brie Christophers, who is a student at, she's in like the Try MD PhD program in New York. Yep. She was the powerhouse behind the free med school guide to the free guide to med school admissions. And, you know, like that is such an incredible resource that was, you know, conceived, developed, and disseminated on social media. Like it's just so, there's so much advocacy that can get done. And we yep. can't afford to lose people like that from this space because of harassment. I'm glad that you called that resource out, actually, and I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes for this episode. It's extraordinary. It is absolutely amazing. It's It's got just a robust tool set, and it's something that is easy to share. I think the fact that it's been made open source is just incredible, and I'm, I'm just I'm happy that you called it out because it's something that I'm aware of, and I've read, and I've shared. Uh, it's, it's just tremendous, and I'm glad you called out Brie as well. She's also fabulous to follow on Twitter. I've learned a great deal from her as well, and... It's also that tapestry, I think, too, that just makes it exciting. Um, for me, as a white male physician, it's it's social media and those interactions and, and these sorts of conversations and reading articles like the one that you wrote. It makes things more aspirational because we see where and how we can get better and we meet and interact with people who are doing that work who then give us those tools to be more mindful, more sensitive, have better situational awareness across the board in the practice of medicine to do this differently and to do it better because we all still want our careers to be what we hoped they would be when we started filling out applications, you know, back in the day, whenever that was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I learned, I'm so grateful for the people that I follow on social media. I learned so much from them. 
Um, but I, you know, it's equally as important too that we take what we learn and we bring it back to our home institutions and we act the same way. I think it's a lot easier to say that you're going to be an advocate for marginalized groups, minoritized people. You know, you can put Black Lives Matter in your bio. You can put hashtag social determinants of health in your bio. But when push comes to shove, if you don't stick up for, you know, the black women on your team when they get harassed or when, you know, they get inappropriate grades because of someone's bias. It's a matter of, you know, saying to yourself, how much of my career am I willing to stake on the line for someone because they're being mistreated on the basis of race, ethnicity, sexuality, something, you know, immigration status. It's easier on social media to be an advocate than it is in real life. It's exhausting, you know, doing doing work in, in real life, you know, sometimes. And um, we have to be able to bring the energy that we have for change on social media into the clinic, into the wards, into med ed and um, support trainees the same way that we do enthusiastically online um, in in real life. And you've demonstrated that in, in more than one way. And I think it's important that we spend a little bit of time on one of the other critical things from my perspective that you have been working on since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, which is First of all, identifying the tremendous gaps in personal protective equipment supplies around the United States, calling that out and then taking action because that in and of itself is a form of advocacy, right? Standing up for people who don't have the necessary gear that's needed to keep them safe. You founded Get Me PPE Chicago, and you've been doing work around securing PPE, but also publicizing the need for it, the ongoing need, the stress that it causes when you don't have it. That is a whole other world of advocacy that is ongoing. Mm-hmm. Where Where is that space right now? What is the work like around Get Me PPE Chicago as we sit here at the beginning of a new year? Well, physically, there's a tower of boxes behind me right now. So it, <laughs> it is currently three feet behind me. You know, it the work continues. So it's a little bit different um, at the beginning of the pandemic. Literally, um, we put together a spreadsheet of every single business that we thought would use personal protective equipment in the city of Chicago. And we called them all. And when you say um, we, who was we? We so the the small we and this is an incredible thing, too. So the the small we is a leadership team that was a group of students from Northwestern, a group of students from Rosalind Franklin Chicago Medical School, a group of students from UIC um, who and Rush who were doing similar work. We were all doing PPE reclamation efforts and kind of. We all understood, I think, the first time that we spoke that we would get further if we worked together. We would do more if we united. And that's kind of a unique thing, actually, in Chicago. When we tend to stay pretty siloed in our little, you know, not little, in our in our spaces, in our institutions, even though, you know, we're only 10, 15 minutes away from each other. But we just, we just did it. We just understood that the necessity of the situation was that we were going to have to work together. Um, and we were spending, you know, four or five hours on Zoom for the first couple of weeks trying to figure out how exactly we plan to do what we set out to do. So, like I mentioned, we literally put together a spreadsheet by zip code, by industry of all of the businesses that we thought used PPE based on research that we did. And then we had a 
couple hundred medical students because we were all pulled off of the wards. We were all pulled out of class, right? This was, you know, spring break-ish, March, April, um, who were making calls. And then we had another group of students who would do, um, who were our drivers, who would drive out to, you know, Mike's auto shop on the west side and Mike's auto shop had a box of unopened N95s because of some, you know, toxic chemical that they use that they need them for. And they would pick them up and they would bring them back to a central location. And then another student would assemble, you know, the donation from Mike's auto shop and a painter group on the north side and um, some gloves that were donated from someone else, you know, down the street and we would put that donation together and then someone else would drive it to the house of an ICU physician who was due to go into the unit later. So it was a matter of like literally not leaving any stone unturned, not turning down any piece of personal protective equipment. We were going to pick up one, two, three and 95s at a time back then, putting it all together and then driving it to a physician's house so they could, in some cases, sneak it in for their team, sneak it in for their residents, hand out an N95 to the residents because they didn't have one. So um, it was very, it didn't even feel real most of the time. It almost has like a cloak and dagger feel to it the way it, you describe it. It it was, it was, it was just so, it was strange. It was yeah. like the entire time it felt like, you know, are we doing something wrong? Well, no, I was going to say, did you guys feel like for some reason you were doing something wrong? You know, no. Yeah, good. <laughs> um, but I guess, did you feel like you might be, as you've acknowledged, right, there's that propensity for some people to just decide to email the dean for some reason and, <laughs> and to go after you. Did you feel like this was something that somebody might say, hey, they are, quote unquote, smuggling N95 masks into the hospital. I'm going to I'm going to blast them for it. Did that feel like it was a variable or did that feel like that that was not going to happen? So that was the case for some of my fellow leadership team members. And wow. that was just a case of, you know what, do it. I dare you. Email my deans and tell them that I'm trying to save my fellow healthcare professionals <laughs> from not being able to be safe at work. I dare you. Luckily, in my case, from the, the get-go, our leadership was incredibly supportive, yeah. um, like very supportive. Like one of our deans has driven donations for us before. So you supportive. made the choice to be transparent around sharing with them in advance what you were going to be doing. That's correct. Yeah, yeah, okay. Based on my understanding of who they are. As, yeah, I mean, yeah, I had yeah. known them for about a year at that point. So I made that gamble. Um, we made that gamble. It paid off um, because they were able to be very, you know, very supportive of what we do. So but that wasn't that wasn't always the case, you know, and there were some cases that we would be calling hospitals and the official person we talked to would be like, no, no, we're fine. We have enough personal protective equipment, random medical students who are calling me. <laughs> and then, um, you know, we would someone would text someone and we would get in touch with um, a resident through a medical student that we knew that was rotating at a community hospital. And they'd be like, we don't have anything. We don't have any face shields. We don't have any N95s. We're out of hand sanitizer. We don't know what to do. The admin won't tell us anything. Help. And so like that was a situation where we would literally be bringing things over to someone's house or they would they would stop off at my apartment on their way to work. That happened a couple of times too. So that was the reality of the situation. That was a very bleak space to be operating in when we were being told one thing by official sources and the people on the ground, the boots on the ground were telling us something else, but that's who we were there to serve. We were there to serve 
the boots on the ground. We're there to serve our fellow healthcare professionals, our teachers, you know, our friends of friends of friends. That's we were there for. And that was our priority. I think it's, I hate sounding trite and I don't like hyperbole, but that is the sort of inspirational note that is needed. And as you're describing it, I'll just share with you, I can hear a different tone in your voice as you're walking through that experience. And I think it will be interesting as you continue to have time and as you know, water kind of just moves under the proverbial bridge and you have some separation from it for you to reflect, write, discuss further what transpired, because that is truly momentous. It's born of that scarcity mindset, right? We should have never had to be in that place in the United States in the 21st century to have shortages like that, that are ongoing, mm-hmm. but that you were able to, and all of your classmates in the entire city of Chicago were able to come together and acknowledge that this is a need and that there's going to be some risk and some huge time commitments and all of that, that you still did the work. It's really amazing. It's really, really inspiring. And it's a great way for us to, I guess, set that framework of if people have that PPE or want to continue to contribute, obviously get me PPE. Chicago is an ongoing entity. Where do people find it? How do they learn what you're doing? How do they contribute if they want to? That is a great question. So I'm going to answer this for generally first and then for Chicago. So you know, one of the things that we set out to do at the beginning, which we established a priority, thanks to some wonderful bioethics professionals, was establish an ethical framework for the distribution of PPE. And that includes not moving it from where it's needed. So if you are a listener in, you know, Texas or Southern California or Alaska or Philadelphia, I don't want you to send your personal protective equipment to Chicago. Please do not keep it in your community where it needs to be. Right now, our main focus is nursing homes and homeless shelters. These are facilities that, unlike larger healthcare institutions, are not able to make big purchases of PPE. Hospitals, by and large, while the PPE is still being used for longer, their supply chains have stabilized. So for nursing homes and homeless shelters, what I would request of your listeners, what I would recommend is the next time they go to buy hand sanitizer, masks, gloves, any sort of protective equipment for them or their families, pick up a couple extra items if it doesn't break your budget and bring them to a homeless shelter in the area. Call your the nursing home where, you know, that's either down the street or where, you know, your aunt lives or your grandma or um, ask them if they're running low on a disinfectant or hand sanitizer and pick up a couple bottles and drop them off. I think if there's a lesson from Get Me PPE Chicago, it's that the cumulative effect of a lot of small things, in our case, donations, but a lot of small efforts add up to something, as you said, momentous. We cannot underestimate the cumulative effect of a lot of people choosing to do a small good thing. So if you tell your neighbor, tell your neighborhood, tell you know your kid's third grade class, if there's an effort to sort of bring PPE, bring cleaning supplies, bring hand sanitizer to these facilities that need it, that will make a huge effect. So that is my general answer. If you're in the Chicago area, we have lots of opportunities for you to help. <laughs> you know, we accept donations. We love when people help us and drive for us. We need, we always need more donation drivers. And we also have a, a GoFundMe. So um, our email is getmeppeshy, C-H-I, because we're cool and hip. So get me, <laughs> get me PPE shy at gmail.com. 
you can shoot us an email. You can say you're interested in volunteering or you're interested in driving for us or you um, happen to have 5,095s in your basement that you want to share. All three of those are good. And you can shoot us an email. You can also go to our website, which is getmeppeshychi.org and you'll see information about our fundraisers. You can see um, a little introductory video about who we are, our current numbers of how our donations have been going and other opportunities to support us. For example, we have um, an art fundraiser going on right now where we've had some really wonderful, really awesome undergraduate students that have led this charge. And we have a art fundraiser website where you can purchase art and then the uh, proceeds go to purchasing PPE. So really cool and creative. Um, But all of that information can be found on our website at getmeppeshy.org. Really cool and creative is a, a great way to describe all of this. I I don't actually have the right words because it's that sets that template that can be done, replicated, that can be sustainable, that can be a template and a model going forward. And I just I think it is really remarkable. I think it's also just so good and important to know that that next generation, like we talked about at the beginning of the show, right, the next cohort that's coming in is doing this work that has this mindset that looks at the world through these sorts of prisms because it's the right way to do it. And it's going to help improve the profession, which then helps us improve the delivery of care at a population level. I'm, I'm so grateful to you for coming on. I know we actually pulled this off on pretty short notice. You clearly have a ton going on in addition to getting ready for the board exam. <laughs> Trisha, this was really wonderful. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. My thanks once again to Trisha for joining me on this episode of Explore the Space podcast. Definitely check out the links in the show notes. We packed it full of all of the great and important things that Trisha is doing and the things that she referenced in there as well. Thank you also to Lori Bedke and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode. Learn more about Creighton's executive MBA and executive fellowship programs at www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E. Definitely check out the archive of Explore the Space, www.explorethespaceshow.com. And please do hit me on social media at ETS Show on Twitter. And please feel free to email me as well, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. My thanks as always to you for listening. There's a ton of options out there. I am grateful to you for your time and your support. We will be back soon with more great content. Until then, wear your masks, wash your hands, maintain physical distancing. Take care of yourselves. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.